we're going to be in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open up there. And the, the, the title of the study is Keeping the Unity. Imagine if I got a hammer, and uh, I was even visualized when what happened to um, Nancy Pelosi's husband. You guys heard about that, right? So getting a hammer, and uh, imagine if I got a hammer and I just hit myself. Boom! As hard as I could. How many of you think that would be a good idea? I'm just curious. It, it's, it's not good, right? Because um, this is me. This is my body. There, there's something going on in the church. We are, we are hurting ourselves because of the division that's taking place. You know, you got a brother, you got a sister, and there's things that are separating you. And do you think that you're cool with that and that you won't be affected by that? You will. Because there's a division going on. It's like hitting yourself. And so for us, this is an important part because as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, one of the things that definitely stands out is Paul the Apostle has been saying, you know, you had your Jews, you have your Gentiles, they were totally separated, but God has completely united them. And so um, he kind of carries that same concept here. And what ends up happening, you guys, whether it's your home, whether it's your family, whether it's your church or ministry, if we are united, we will be strong. We will be strong. And so that's what we want. I think Paul here then carries this on. I have an outline for you I want to give you. Um, we're going to see part of this unity. Number one, we're going to need these words. We're going to need humility. We'll see that in verses one through two. We're going to know, we need to know the reality of this unity, that in all reality, that person that you're upset with, you are united with them. We are united as a church, and so you need to know the reality of, of this unity. And then we're going to talk about the ministry and how Jesus, um, you know, he is the one that gives, you know, men and women to the church in order to... Um, Keep them united as they're exercising their gifts. Then there's this maturity that God brings and there's this unity that's beautiful. And so we, we see that here. Look at verse 1 of Ephesians 4 where, where Paul says, I, I therefore, as he's gone through this whole first three chapters of doctrine, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now again, the therefore is after three chapters of doctrine. Three chapters of, look at, this is how wealthy you are. This is how powerful you are. This is how united we are. I therefore, Paul says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Remind, rem, let me remind you who's writing to you. He's the guy that's incarcerated for righteousness. It is Paul the apostle. He says, I, I, I therefore beg you. You know, when was the last time you had someone beg you for something? Here's Paul the apostle begging us that we would walk worthy of this calling with which we are called. You know, the, the walk, it's mentioned seven times 
uh, from this point forward in the book of Ephesians. And it describes our life, you know, um, our spiritual journey. Uh, to walk worthy, it means that our conduct and calling should be in balance. You know, it, it means that, you know, this, you know, you say you're a Christian. You say you're a Christian. How many of you here say you are a Christian? You guys say you're a Christian? Then we should be like Christ. Christ. Is that, is that what's going on? Here he says, you got to walk worthy of this calling with which you were called. In verse 2, he says, with all lowliness. And so the Greek word here is a compound word made up of two words that speak of a humble mind. And so, you know, for us, we have to have like a humble mind, not thinking too highly of ourselves. Now, we got to be careful with that because some people um, are like, well, I'm a horrible person, you know, God doesn't love me. And, you know, there's that aspect, the world uses the concept of self-esteem. And, and I think there's something to that. Like I have self-esteem in the sense that I'm, I know, you should know, you're valuable to God. You are loved by God. You are like in the apple of his eye. So, you know, you don't want to, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater. But when it comes to this lowliness, there has to be an aspect of humility. Don't think too highly of yourself where what ends up happening is you look down on others. We can't be that way. You know, the word uh, proud or pride is the antithesis of this lowliness. In the Greek culture, when Paul is writing, humility was thought of as a vice to be practiced only by slaves. But in Christian culture, it's not a vice. It's actually valuable. It's actually powerful. And Paul teaches us that we should be humble in life. We have to have that lowliness. And then secondly, he uses the word gentleness. And so this is the opposite of self-assertion, of rudeness, of harshness. It suggests one's emotions, emotions under control. And at the same time, it doesn't speak of, of weakness, right? And so, you, you, you know, here we are. The enemy wants to divide us. You, maybe, and your spouse. You, maybe, and your kids. You, maybe, and your friends, your family. They're Christians. You're Christians. Oh, you don't have to be a rocket science. You don't have to have a degree in theology to know what the devil is doing. What's the devil doing? He is dividing, trying to divide. And so here's Paul the Apostle, because Jesus Christ put it in his heart. He's saying, I'm begging of you. I'm begging of you. Don't let it happen. Don't let it happen. Be like Jesus, who with, with, he had this heart of, of lowliness. He had this heart of gentleness. Don't be prideful. Be humble. Don't be harsh. Be, be gentle. The dictionary defines gentleness as having or showing a mild, kind, or tender temperament or character. Now, be a gentleman. Be a gentle woman. After all, you guys, if you think about it, has God been gentle to you? God has been gentle to you. Can I ask you a question? Do you deserve it? Do you deserve it? Yeah, they don't deserve it. But you be gentle to them. Because this is the way God has been with us. It doesn't mean, like I said, you're meek or you're, or you're weak. It's really strength to control. Really, it's the way that Jesus is. If you think about Jesus, he's the one with all power and 
has always been that way towards us. I, I love that scripture, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There it is. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, that's the way Jesus is with us, and that's the way we should be with others. As a matter of fact, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, it says this. Check it out. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. How many of you guys think the Lord is at hand, like he's coming soon? You're like, okay, the Lord's coming soon. How are you getting ready for his return? How are you getting ready for his return? Right here, Paul says, in order to get ready for his return, you better have an increase in gentleness. It's interesting, huh? You wouldn't think that. You know, part of preparing for the coming of the Lord is cultivating a character in which we are known for our gentleness. Are you known for your gentleness? Am I? This is what, you know, what, okay, we got doctrine, now there's duty. We got beliefs, now there's behavior. Now we're putting the rubber to the road. And he's saying you have to walk worthy of this calling that you have. I'll tell you what, especially if you're in ministry, especially if you're in ministry, you know, 2 Timothy 2.24, it says, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, Patient. Now, that's an interesting passage because, you know, you're, you're, you're a servant of the Lord and you have to be gentle to all. And then he says, able to teach. But then he says, patient. So patient and, and gentleness, I kind of see them together. But what's this able to teach thing? And you want to know what that is? It's sandwiched between two aspects of gentleness. And basically what Paul is saying there is you will teach others. By your gentleness. You know, a lot of times we're, and you know, some of you guys here, you're like, well, yeah, Manny, but I got Latin blood, bro. You know, I got the, you know, Hispanic mentality, or you don't know me, Manny, you were, you're, you're, you're gentle by nature. It's just the way you are. So you can't be talking stuff, but I'm different than you are. And I, you know, went through this and that, and this is why I got a temper. And you know, a lot of times that's the mentality, the, whatever, the Latin blood. Well, what about the blood of Jesus? That can change you if you want to be changed. Because this is God's calling on our life. You know, it's where people, when they describe you, he's a, he's a gentle man. And she's a gentle woman. See, this is the, the calling that we see right here. If we're willing to obey and put on a humble mentality, gentle activity, it will then lead to something. And I'll tell you this, you guys. It's going to hurt. It's going to lead to what I would describe as fleshly agony, which is, Paul, which is why Paul warns us with the third word right there, that word long-suffering. Uh, guess what long-suffering means? Anyone want to guess on that? It means to suffer for a long time. Some people are willing to suffer for uh, a short period of time, willing to suffer for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years, but eventually enough, enough. I've had it, and the hammer comes down. But right here we see the Lord says, no, long-suffering means to suffer long, believe it or not. Part of reaching humility is a willingness to be 
humiliated. And we don't like that, huh? You know, I was thinking about uh, in Mark 14, 65, you know what the Bible says? It says they spit on Jesus. They spit on him. Interesting, in Mark chapter 10, verse 34, he predicted that. He knew that they were going, I'm walking into this. I'm, I'm walking in. They're going to spit on me. Now, and I, and I, I don't know how, like, how to describe it. I don't know what to say. Well, if someone spits on you, I mean, a part of me is like hesitant to say, well, just take it. There's a part of me that wants to say, suck them in the face. But, but this is what happened to our Lord. They spit on him. I remember one time I was working at Vaughn's. I was a young man there, and I was doing the groceries, kind of going through right here. And these two started arguing, and it was a young man, and it was an older lady. And I remember, man, he got this out of his mouth, and he just spit all over her. It was the most humiliating thing I ever saw. We got involved with that whole altercation. I mean, to me, that's just, I mean, it's this, I don't know how to describe it, one of the most humiliating things anyone can go through. I remember one time, Pastor Raw, you guys know Pastor Raw, he knows Kung Fu Sansu. And so what Kung Fu Sansu is, I don't know if you guys know this or not, basically it's a martial art that it, every, every move ends with a death blow. Ends with a death blow. And so he's an eighth-degree black belt, Kung Fu Sansu. You know what happened to him one day when he was at church? Someone came up to him and slapped him. Imagine that, slapped him. How many of you guys would just, how many of you guys would do that, right? You would justify it. You would justify it. You would say they deserve it. Well, let me tell you something. Then you're not being like Jesus, and that's the whole point of this life. What are you going to do when you're tested? What are you going to do? Because here we see, as we're reading this right here, there has to be that aspect of long-suffering. And what happens is we refuse to take up our cross and deny ourselves. And just like the rest, we don't pass the test. You're no different than anyone else. You're nice when things are cool. You're, you know, you're cool when things are fine. But when you get tested, when God wants this character of Christ to shine, we don't. And this is where it has to start. Now, now again, I, I don't know the ins and outs. It's interesting what the Bible talks about. You know, sometimes the Bible even talks about letting yourself be wronged in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I don't know. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. All the divine details, God will show you. But I do know this. I don't know if it's talking about being a doormat when injustice is taking place. All I can tell you is this: read this and let God give you the wisdom in every single situation. You know, God will give you love. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says that love, it, it suffers long. And so right here is long-suffering. It speaks of self-restraint, which does not retaliate when they're wronged. Not prideful, but humble. Not harsh, but gentle. Not short-fused, but long-suffering. And then number four here, he says, bearing with one another in love. So bearing with one another means that you're with people who are flawed. You're people you're with people who have faults and you make allowances for them because of your love for them. You know, they're, they're not perfect. They're flawed. They're frail. And Paul says when we're in those situations, it needs to be covered by love. 
And, you know, I could think of this very, um, very, very much being applied in a marriage. You know, um, yesterday I was able to share at a, a marriage conference, and we were just talking about, about how love, um, how that changes people, genuine love. And, and when we look at this right here, what God is saying is this is where we need to be. First Peter 4, 8, it says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, verse 12, it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So let me ask you guys a question, because a lot of times when I'm doing a Bible study, I'm always asking the Lord, Lord, I want this to make a difference in my life. And I want this to make a difference in their life. I mean, these people are coming to church and there's so much that's going on in their life, Lord. I want them to be blessed. I want them to be strong. I want them to live life successfully. I want them to bring you glory. And so let me ask you a question as we're covering this today. This is where we're at in Ephesians 4. How does this apply to your life? Who is God calling you to love? Who is it? Who is it? How? How will you do it? I pray that we would have this in our heart. Maybe it's a relative. Maybe it's a child who always treats you bad and you're a parent and it doesn't make any sense. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's your boss or your employer at work. And in all reality, they're, you know, they're just you know, very flawed. I remember when I uh, was working with this one guy and we were in a department and he was lazy. He was lazy and he was mean and he would, you know, mistreat people and it just got under my skin because one thing that I learned as a young man is you got to work hard. You know, 10 years old, mowing lawns, you know, doing washing cars, doing a lot of stuff. I mean, always hustling. Whatever job I had, I'm not, I'm not trying to brag, but for some reason I always knew you got to work hard. you got to bust your butt. you got to work hard. And so here is this guy, and, and he wasn't. He would go to work, and he, some people, do you guys ever work with somebody where their, their whole goal is to see how little I can do? Have you guys ever worked with someone like that? As little as they can do, as long as they get paid for it, right? And so this guy was like that. He would go, and he'd be reading the paper. Oh, yeah, barking orders, doing all that kind of stuff. And so I, 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 got, I was upset, you know, and I'm just saying I was an, a young, fairly young Christian, and, you know, we got into it a few times. You know, you shouldn't be talking to her like that. You shouldn't be telling us to work when you're over there sitting down, not doing nothing. And, and then eventually God got to me and said, you know what? He's not a Christian. You are, and you're not really being, you are more accountable. You are more accountable. You are not representing me well. And God got to me. And you know what I did? I said, okay, Lord, I'm going to work as hard as I can, not for him, but I'm going to work as hard as I can for you. And so I went, and we started working hard. Next thing you know, our department started to excel. Next thing you know, the numbers were just out, outrageous, what was going on, and the guy got promoted. <laughs> he got promoted. But this is what happened. He got promoted by being uh, transferred to a different store with uh, greater responsibility, larger numbers, bigger bonuses like that. But then what ended up happening is that crew, that crew, they said, oh, no, we ain't going to do that for you. 
And so you know what happened next? He got demoted. And I was like, yes. <laughs> no, I wasn't, because the Proverbs say you're not supposed to do that, right? But I'm just saying, you know, maybe the Lord is not going to necessarily change them through this. Maybe he wants to change you deep in your love and make you more like Jesus. Because this is powerful stuff. You know, there, there's this unity in the, in the church as a whole. There's this unity in your family. There's this unity in our local congregation here that needs these things because the devil wants to come in and weaken us. Our nation is messed up because even though we're the United States of America by, you know, position, practically we are not united. And so, yeah, you're going to have differences because people are different, but how do you handle those things? Do we do it like this? You know, we're not ignorant of the devil's plan, you guys. It's just to divide and destroy, to ruin our families, to ravish the flock. He wants to do it through division. And so we need to know these words that we're, we're, we're learning today. Number one, humility. Can you say that with me? Humility. Number two, reality. Look at verse three. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And so what Paul here is saying is there's this unity and we need to endeavor. And that word, it means work harder, work harder. When was the last time you ever thought that to yourself? I need to work harder at this. Harder. This is what he's saying right here. I need to make every diligent effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You know, and, and the thing about it here, the reason why we have the word reality, we don't have to create the unity. It's the reality is it's already there. We're already united. He's a brother, you're a brother, he, she's a sister, you're a sister. We are one. That's the reality of it. We don't have to create it. All we have to do, though, is we do have to, we have to keep it. And if we don't keep it, then we're going to lose it. And that's not just them who loses, you lose. You hit yourself. Because we're one. And this is why we need to figure out, Lord, what do I need to do to, to make this peaceful, to make this right in your sight. For Jesus, he had to die on a cross. God will show us what to do. You know, right here, we're to keep it, not lose it. And Paul brings up this bond of peace, which again, look real quick at Ephesians 2, 14. For he himself, it says in Ephesians 2, 14, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. When he says both one, who is he speaking about? Jews and Gentiles. He's made both one. Look at the next verse. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the, love of command, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And we see the same thing in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and those who are near, the Jews and the Gentiles. And that's what he's saying back here in Ephesians chapter 4. 
In verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in this bond of peace. The reality is, you guys, we're united. And if you come against them, you're coming against yourself. You have to find a different way, a deeper way, in order to do it God's way. And I think of marriage, again, what God has joined together, let not man separate, says in Mark chapter 10, verse 9. I think that this passion for peace means that Christians will lovingly tolerate each other even when they have differences. Do you acknowledge that you're one? If they're saved and you're saved, you're one. You guys are married, you're one. Your family, you're one. This church, it's a local congregation, we're one. The church universal, we're one. Do we have to have that reality in our hearts? And then Paul here, he goes on into this seven things that um, they basically are elements of unity in the three persons of the Trinity. He says that there's one body, one body, but different parts. Secondly, there's one spirit, and that Holy Spirit lives in all of those who are saved. There's one hope, that hope of heaven that we have. There's one Lord. What's his name? Jesus. Right? There's one faith, and that is in reference to our body of beliefs, and there's one baptism. More than likely, this is in reference to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, for our own spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then he mentions, seventhly, that there is one God, and he is the Father. He is the Father. And so I want to you know, have a stronger family, and so I want unity. And sometimes we push buttons but I'm going to learn to humble myself and I'm going to acknowledge the reality of this oneness that I don't want to violate. This is what he's saying right here. You know, and, and you know, when it, when it comes to the, the one father, the one God, you know, I hope I don't get in trouble for sharing this, but I have two children. And uh, have you guys noticed yet that your children are not perfect? Does anyone here have perfect children? I'm just curious. All right, so, you know, none of us here have perfect children, but I love them more than any words could ever articulate. You guys know that, right? Think about your kids. Think about it for a second. How much do you love them? How much do you love them? There are no words that you can describe that would adequately express how much you love them, right? The same is true for God and his kids, right? And so when my kids, sometimes, you know, they have their scuffles, you know, when they say things and they cross lines. And as I'm there and I'm witnessing the whole thing, to be honest with you, it breaks my heart. My heart. Well, how does God feel when that happens with his kids? Listen, we have to make sure that we don't fight each other. It's counterproductive. Fight the enemy because we are one. You know, maybe you're there and you're in a situation like that. Sometimes my wife and I will be in situations just like you and your wife, you and your husband. Maybe the best thing to do, God will show you what to do though, but maybe the best thing to do is to say, let's pray. Let's pray. You ever thought about that? Someone say, hey, let's get together. Your brother, your sister. Oh, you know what? Maybe we should pray. And same thing with uh, husband and wife. You know, you guys are in there. You're having your holy headlock. You're having your scuffles, right? And um, intense fellowship. 
And I've learned that, yeah, you know what? Let's pray because you can't do that in the flesh. You know, we're one. We have one God, one Father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray our Father. Our Father, not my Father. Our Father. My prayer is that as we're going through life as a Christian, that we would see the depth of reality and the unity that we have. You know, we have the three persons of the Trinity mentioned here, but one of the things that's interesting is that he doesn't say Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In this case, the order is the Holy Spirit comes first. Now, that's not random. The reason is because then he goes on to talk about the gifts, right? Same thing in 1 Corinthians 12, when he mentions the three members of the Trinity, in that context, the Holy Spirit is first. Because now he's going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. And part of that is because, again, coming back to the same goal, we just want to be united. The humility, reality of oneness, and then thirdly, the ministry. Ministry of Christ, ministry of Christian leaders, and ministry of Christian at a whole, as a whole. Look at verse 7. But, but to each one of us, he says, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So how can we be united? Number one, humility. Number two, reality, realize you're one. And then number three is this ministry. And it begins with the ministry of Christ. You know, part of the ministry of Jesus is not just dying and rising and ascending, but also giving gifts to men. First Peter 4.10 says we all have gifts. Uh, Ephesians 4.7 in the NLT says he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. And so to each one of us, grace was given, gifts were given when he ascended on high. When he ascended on high, he sent who? The Holy Spirit. And those doors were then opened to heaven. People went in from, you know, the Luke 16 talks about Abraham's bosom. And then he gave supernatural gifts to us. And, and we're going to see how this all plays out right here. And so Paul then, as he's talking about Jesus ascending, he says, first, however, he descended. And basically what he's doing is quoting there from Psalm 68, summarizing the chapter in which it basically describes how Jesus won the war. And as the general or as the king, he has the right to distribute that wealth to those who are with him. So basically what happened when Jesus died on a cross, he went down. Um, and this could be descending lower. It could just be him coming to earth dying, rising, going to heaven. It could also be how he went deeper into Abraham's bosom, into the center of the earth, and he let these people free, and now they're up into heaven. But then eventually he goes all the way up there, and he's at the right hand of the Father now, and what Jesus does is he sends supernatural power so that my church won't be divided. That's the context here, unity. This is what he does. You know, when you look at the ministry of Christ, sending these people, it's interesting because this is different than the other passages. You know, later, if you get a chance, you can check out 1 Corinthians 12. You can check out Romans 12. 
You can check out 1 Peter chapter 4. There we have the gifts of the Spirit. But here this is different. In this context, he doesn't just give gifts to men. He gives men as gifts. That's what we see here in verse 11. And he himself, that's Jesus, and that's emphatic in the Greek, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. And so it's one thing giving someone a gift. Let's just say you're here, you're a Christian. I got a ton of grace and that God gave me the gift of tongues. And so I can pray in tongues. You know, it's a gift that God gave me. Or maybe you're here and you have the gift of helps or you have you know, the gifts of uh, giving. There's different gifts that God gives to people. But this right here is speaking about men and women who are actually given to the church. So not gifts given to men, but men given as gifts. And he mentions the list right here. Some are apostles. An apostle, not not the office of an apostle, because there's only 12 but the function of an apostle. And that's more or less a missionary. It talks about someone who's sent. God gives apostles. God gives prophets. Now, again, not necessarily the office of a prophet, but the function of a prophet. What does a prophet do? He foretells and foretells God's word. And he gives these people to the church. I mean, I would not be where I am today, you know, by the grace of God, a pastor, and just... Man, so much grace God has given to me, but I would not be here were it not for the prophets that God sent my way who spoke these words that I know were completely from God. And it wasn't just men. Some of them were men, but some of them were women that came to me speaking, saying that God told me to tell you this, weeping. And I remember one time I was... um, praying this prayer in my prayer closet just between me and God, just me and God. No one else knew. I was using this phrase, and I don't want to tell you guys what it is because then you might try the magic mantra, so I don't want to tell you what it was. <laughs> but um, I was this, this phrase. It was unique. I'd never prayed it before. And then I remember one time after I did a study, a lady came up to me with just tears in her eyes, and she told me, this is what God told me to tell you, and it was exactly the phrase that I had been praying And she said, and this is what God wants you to do. What's that? That's a word of knowledge and it's a word of wisdom. And God gives certain ladies, certain men, these types of gifts, missionaries. Thinking of, uh, man, Amy Carmichael, 50 years in India. Do you realize what she did? Hundreds of little girls that she rescued who were sold as temple slaves and prostitutes. Amazing what God did through her, impacting the nation so much that because of her ministry, and she spent the last 20 years bedridden, she was still advocating for these little girls. So that legislation was changed, and it finally became illegal to sell the little girls to the temple to be used as prostitutes. See, God gave gifts to the church. God gave apostles. God gave prophets. God here, it says, gave evangelists. I was thinking about the ministry of Billy Graham, Wow, what a ministry he had in 58 years. He preached 417 crusades, reaching 215 million people. Think about that. I mean, no doubt about it. You know, he was, maybe he he may have even been a prophet. 
Very few people that you can say that 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 might be the case, but I think that he was a generation, a prophet for our generation, but just the the people that he reached, I was even thinking of Betty. Some of you guys know Betty. I mean, her dad got saved through the ministry of Billy Graham. He said, I won't listen to anyone else, but that man right there, he's a man of integrity. Now he's in heaven, Betty's dad, because of the evangelists that, that Jesus sent, you know? And then he mentions the pastors and teachers. And in the Greek language, they're listed together because the construction means that they're one. And so a pastor-teacher, a pastor must be able to teach, right? So all pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Because in order for you to be a pastor, you have to have a pastor's heart, right? And that's one who, who, who loves people, who shepherds the people, who feeds the people, who's willing to lead the people by following Jesus. And if you've ever had, and I've had wonderful pastors in my life, I've had wonderful men, wonderful women in my life. There are people given to us by Jesus. What for? So that we can be one, so that we can be united. That's God's heart. That's what he's saying right here. You know, this ministry of Christ, giving men, this ministry of Christian leaders, who basically those gifts right there are all speaking God's word. They're all speaking God's message, which then leads to the Christian ministers. In verse 13, it says, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I mean, this is, this is the goal, guys. This is the goal. Is that your goal? Is that your passion? Is that your heart? I mean, I want to be like Jesus. We all have different personalities. Thank God for that. But our character should be like what we're reading right here. Our character should be the way that Jesus was. You know, John had mentioned earlier, not my will, not my will, thy will be done. I like what Alan Redpath said, is it my, thy kingdom come, my kingdom go. You know, some people, they don't want to surrender their will to God, and yet Hudson Taylor says the best thing to do is exchange it. Your will for his. This is the goal, to be like Jesus, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, there's the pastor, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effect of working by what every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And what is this, you guys? And, you know, you could probably do 17 studies just on that section right there, but really, in a, in a, in a summarize it, is just saying that every single person, as the pastor is teaching, as the apostles have planted those seeds, the evangelists have done that work, and prophets, you name it, they're all working together, then every person starts doing their part. And when every person in the church starts doing their part, then there's this building up of itself, it says, in love. There's this maturity. Sometimes you see it, man, and you're like, man, they won't grow up, Lord. 
They won't grow up. They're, they're immature. When we're born, when we're born again as a Christian, we become what's known as baby believers, right? Baby believers. But then what happens to a baby? A baby eventually learns how to walk, right? They learn how to walk and they learn how to talk, right? And they learn how to, to live. They learn how to love, to love, to love those who love you. That's it, right? I want to love everybody. And especially to love your neighbors. Especially to love your enemies. That's when we're like Jesus. And that's what he's talking about right here. Now, I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Right here we talk about the ministry. I hope you know that you're a minister. And I pray that we would have this heart Let's look at the outline one more time. I think we have it. Um, looking at, Lord, how can we keep this unity? Number one, with the heart of humility. Number two, the reality, just realizing, this is almost a doctrinal thing, you know, because doctrine's real powerful. We're one. Hey, if I hit them, I'm hitting myself. Number three, this ministry of Christ, what he does, what then Christian leaders are called to do, and then what all Christians are called to do as ministers when we all do our part then we're going to be strong as, as christians and, and then what does that lead it leads to it leads to maturity and that's what we want you guys we, we really want to be known for the character that we have that's that's like jesus